Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. I'm Kevin Grosso, your host for this episode, and I'm delighted to have Dr. Matthew Bates with us today. He is Associate Professor of Theology at Quincy University, and he is the author of a recent book on the gospel entitled Gospel Allegiance, which will be our main topic for today. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Hey, thanks so much, Kevin. Great to be on your show. So I just wanted to start out with a question um, on really the the underpinnings of, of why you wrote the book. What prompted you to to write Gospel Allegiance, which is a little bit of a of a provocative book at times? Yeah, it's actually a follow up to an earlier book I wrote, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And uh, the reason I ended up writing Gospel Allegiance was um, partly because um, partly because the press asked me to write a follow-up to it, and I was like, I'm not sure exactly how I want to follow up. Um, and as we discussed it, I, I realized there were some things I really needed to deepen in Salvation by Allegiance alone that I hadn't really gone deep enough. But at the same time, they wanted it to be for a broader audience. Um, Salvation by Allegiance alone is already pr- pretty broad uh, in terms of like how I tried to write the book, but it's under an academic imprint, and so Gospel Allegiance was a trade book that they wanted to get out to an even bigger audience. So I was sort of balancing two competing interests, right, in writing it. On the one hand, um, wanting to kind of further the work that I did in Salvation by Allegiance alone by, like, digging into some select topics a lot deeper. But then the challenge was that was supposed to be for an even more popular audience. So how to combine those two goals um, into the book. Um, but that's kind of the pragmatics of why. Um, like, uh, in terms of, like, the, you know, the deeper motivation uh, would certainly be a concern for the church how the gospel is being presented, how faith is being understood, and how salvation is being packaged. Um, seeing some deficiencies there as I grew up in a, a very much, you know, kind of conservative evangelical culture, heard a lot of gospel messages preached, and the more I studied it, the more I realized there's some concerning dimensions here that might need correction. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, um, you know, certainly the the motivation we should have for, for a lot of what we do. Um, so yeah, that's that's greatly appreciated. Um, and you know, on this podcast specifically, we're going to look more particularly at um, you know how how your book interfaces with the biblical languages. I mean, Greek in this case, of course, because um, we're dealing with the New Testament. So, um, but to get started, for those who haven't read it, what what is the main premise or argument of the book? The main premise is that um, we've misunderstood what the gospel is and misunderstood what faith means when responding specifically to the gospel, uh, and that the combination of, of of correcting those two things leads to a new synthesis or a new model. So I argue in the book for what's called the gospel allegiance model and argue that that's a better way of putting together salvation holistically. So we need to, on the one hand, understand that the gospel is primarily climaxing in Jesus's kingship, that Jesus has become the king is the saving good news. Um, And then on the other hand, um, that faith can mean, doesn't always mean, but can mean allegiance or loyalty. uh, And that that's especially what it means when we're talking about what it means to respond to the good news. Uh, And so putting those two together, um, we're saved whenever we respond to Jesus's kingship uh, by giving allegiance to him. Yeah, so so that makes sense. So, just focusing more on the on the linguistic aspect, it seems like your argument, right, is based on, um, yeah, a new a new understanding of gospel and a new understanding of of pistis, right, or faith in in Greek. Um, so in some of your recent work, all right, especially gospel allegiance, you bring up modern linguistics as a tool for exegesis. So you have a little section on, on um, you know specifically using linguistics for for analysis. So what have been some of your linguistic influences and how have they shaped your analysis? Yeah, I, I guess I've come to um, appreciate linguistics just through um, the broader discipline of biblical studies, as I think most biblical scholars are aware that like, hey, we should probably think about like how words mean things in general, like how language works to kind of encode our ideas, to create um, shared communications. Um, and obviously, there's a whole discipline um, that has devoted itself to those kinds of questions that has nothing to do with biblical studies per se. Um, so, like, um, you know, just kind of beginning to um, become more aware of uh, those broader macro questions, you know, as you dive into the field, I mean, it can be interesting on the one hand to, like, 
you know, learn what this or that Greek or Hebrew word means um, in terms of like, you know, a a dictionary sort of approach or a kind of a synonym kind of approach to like, okay, well, we, we learned a gloss, you know, a certain word this way, right? Um, but whenever we learn to gloss, you know, gnosis as knowledge or whatever it might be, um, like there, there's a, a kind of a, a mapping um, of one onto another that doesn't really do business with how words mean things in general. Um, so kind of appreciating a broader framework for that. So my own entry point has been more cognitive linguistics, more than its competing field, like which would be somewhat competing, somewhat complementary formal linguistics. Um, so some of my influences, I guess, would be like um, George Lakoff um, would be a, a major figure in that field. Um, Mark Johnson. Um, uh, and then uh, like some of it has actually just also been kind of textbook writing, like people who have broadly synthesized the field. I don't know if I'm saying his name properly or not, but Vivian Evans um, has been someone who's helped me a lot, uh, and I'm not sure even how to say his name, uh, but I, I do thank him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's a great point about um, yeah, just learning a gloss and and saying you know Greek or Hebrew. Um, it's something that I think a lot of people end up reading English in their Greek text. Right. And so they're really not reading the Greek. They're really just reading, you know, the, their English translation in the back of their head <laughs> or, or, the, or the English that they learned that's, you know, somewhat equivalent to the Greek. Um, so, yeah, I think that's just super important. So um, let, let's get into a, a specific question on on PCS and kind of see kind of what your, you know, you, what your thought process is on on how to go about analyzing you know, a Greek word and, and coming to a different understanding of it than what might normally be accepted. So on page 67, you say, due to our bias for single meaning, it is probable that Paul, Jesus, and others during the New Testament time period had only one basic image concept in mind with regard to the Pistis word family. It was not allegiance per se. What was it? It was trustworthiness, faithfulness, or trust, faith. So the the question from this is, can you flesh out the idea of trust or trustworthiness as the basic meaning of, of pistis? Um, so even just in English, what does trust, trustworthiness mean? Um, and why do you think it's a good summary of the pistis word? Yeah. So first of all, I would say I'm obviously relying on the work of other scholars a bit in coming to those kinds of conclusions. I haven't comprehensively, exhaustively, you know, explored the pistis lexicon. Um, but rely on people who have done more comprehensive studies. And Teresa Morgan's uh, work is uh, particularly, I think, excellent in that regard. Um, and, and so maybe I'll circle back to her in a second. But um, yeah, how would I understand trust? Um, well, obviously, whenever you trust somebody, that would involve a, a posture of reliance, of, of, of believing they're going to come through for you in some way. Or if it's an inanimate object, trusting your car um, would involve um, a sense of its reliability that as you need to use it, it will come through for you, right? And when you need to start it, the engine will actually turn over. Um, and uh, so uh, trust is obviously, trust obviously involves like a committing of yourself to the care of another or committing something else to the care of another uh, would, would, would tend toward those kinds of ideas. Now, trustworthiness is, um, is important because it's quite different than trust, right? Um, someone who's trustworthy is someone who is uh, someone who, um, uh, in, if you were to, in, 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 to give something to them, they're going to be faithful in what they do. They're going to come through for you, right? So one is something like where, like, you know, if you trust somebody, right, well, then you're in, uh, intending something toward them. Someone who's trustworthy is the recipient of that, right? Uh, trustworthiness or faithfulness. So quite different understanding of the two. One of the things that's interesting is that um, we tend to strongly disambiguate around those, right? We tend to be like, well, we have this trust idea and this trustworthiness idea, and they're quite distinct. Uh, in Greek, uh, the one word pistis seems to be able to, to um, cover both sides of that, that it involves both faith and faithfulness, which are actually quite distinct ideas in terms of our own lexicon. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, that's an important point for us to remember. Um, and this is just, you know, how words work within a system, of, within a lexicon, right, is that um, it, it doesn't really make sense for faith and faithfulness in English to mean the same thing because, you know, faith is already taking up a meaning space, right? And faithfulness 
you know, is, is similar, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to do the same work that faith, faith is doing, right? It can do something a little bit different. Um, and, so, and so what you're saying, though, is that um, in Greek, both of these concepts are, are really not, not distinguished, or at least they use the same word um, for both the idea of trust or trustworthiness. That's right. Yeah, and I think that is an important concept, especially because our English meanings like tend to like over time shift, right? As uh, maybe you know, five hundred years ago, the word faith um, had stronger connotations connotations of our own faithfulness. It had ideas of fidelity, like more actively present in them. Like we need to like um, not just trust in something, but we like as part of that, like our ourselves committed right, in some way that shows fidelity toward the object of trust. They're more like, those ideas are more probably closely aligned. Whereas today, when faith begins to mean something like just belief in general, or like even like stronger gets kind of anti-evidential connotations, like like believing without any evidence or believing the miraculous or um, just like like trusting even though it doesn't make any sense at all. Like um, that, whenever we have those kinds of ideas that get imported into um, our like lexicon of or our, our encyclopedia of knowledge that's bound up with faith, all right? Well, then we can get even more distant from um, like uh, like the the, the the ideas we're trying to translate, like pistis ideas, right? Um, so that's another uh, kind of concern uh, would be to to think about shifts in in language over time. Yeah, yeah, and and that's um, yeah, I think that's also just really important when we just when we think about translation, right? You know, um, even something like a translation in the King James might have meant something quite different from from what it would mean today for for many English speakers. Um, so, so one thing, obviously, the title of your book, Gospel Allegiance, right, suggests that the way you're taking this this word group is is allegiance, right? Peace means something like allegiance. Um, can you explain a little more fully how you get from trust, what you're saying, the basic meaning is? to allegiance. Um, I think for some English speakers, you know, this might seem to be a bit of a jump, right? Because, because again, you know, when, when we think, when we're using the English words, trust, right, we don't, we don't normally think allegiance. Um, so yeah, how, how, do you, how do you get there from, from this basic meaning to this more specific meaning? Yeah, and I'm clear, and I think hopefully clear enough in the book itself that uh, I don't think that like pistis means allegiance or anything like that. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hopefully clear enough to say that it can mean that in some, in some kinds of contexts, right? Um, that we can see the allegiance idea foregrounded. Um, but again, this word is not really a disambiguated word. It can mean trust or it can mean trustworthiness, right? It, and it means the, the best idea would be to think unless it's disambiguated, it means both in context. You may have it disambiguated in context, but when a when somebody who was a native Greek speaker used the word pistis, they were not necessarily disambiguating trust or trustworthiness unless they needed to, right? They could probably disambiguate those, but there was a tendency to not. You just use the word, uh, and people could disambiguate using context somewhat if necessary, but sometimes that wasn't even necessary. Uh, just the, 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 the word itself, like an, in, an undisambiguated form, could do the service that was needed to communicate. Um, so... Yeah, I would argue that it's really contextually driven, like that whenever we're talking about saving faith, right, it's partly because we're talking about this in relationship to Jesus the King, like he's called Jesus Christ. And so because of our, our again, like long history of ideas and theology, right, what has happened over time is that the term Christ has got evacuated of its full meaning, right, that it's it's a title. Um, and, you know, Matthew Novenson's work on... Um, especially this, uh, the, the idea of the title of Christ uh, is especially important here, uh, where he shows that, um, no, it didn't like just become a personal name. Like it wasn't Jesus the Christ, wasn't like, you know, Jesus Christ wasn't a personal name. It still had a valence of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the universal Jewish king who would have some ru rule over both Israel and the nations, uh, that, it, that it implicated these larger kinds of ideas. So whenever we're thinking about what does it mean to respond to the good news that Jesus has become the king, uh, or the good news that Jesus is the Lord, or um, any kind of royal ideas, I would argue that contextually we have strong evidence that when we're talking about what, 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 what a saving faith might involve, it, re it involves a response to him in his royal capacity. 
So, so then the, the basic idea is that trusting, let's say, I don't know, my wife in, in Greek, right, would mean something different than trusting my king. That's right. Is that is that the idea? Yes, that that would be that would be the idea. That we would we would say that in general, whenever you're talking about trust or or the pistis word group with re, with regard to a king, that the normal the the normal sort of meaning of that word would involve heightened ideas beyond trust to a like a a consistent posture of trust, uh, and even of trustworthiness. Right, that you in service of the king, like, are going to be loyal to the king. You're going to be faithful to the king. So we're as we tend to divide out trust and trustworthiness, like they're going to entrust themselves to the king, right? Um, but also they're going to prove to be trustworthy in the service of the king. Uh, and so I think because of Protestant concerns over works, right? And I speak as a Protestant, right? Um, that I think that there's been a tendency to kind of shave off the faithfulness part. And if you like, no, it's just about our faith in Jesus. That's our trust in him. It's our trust in his accomplished work. Uh, and so we don't want to like do business with the other side of the pistis word group, which involves a trustworthiness to the king, a, a faithfulness to the king, a loyalty to the king, an allegiance to the king. We want to say, no, 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 that's all works. We kind of have to like get rid of that stuff. That's dangerous, right? We just trust his accomplished work. We don't have to like be trustworthy because we all know we're sinners. And I think that's um, in fact misunderstands the shape of the gospel misunderstands what pistis means, misunderstands what grace means. Uh, and we get into a whole bunch of nested, you know, kind of uh, categories connected to salvation that we need to untangle. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, just it seems like your argument then, um, if I'm understanding correctly, is is really largely based on what goes along with pistis, right? That That it's always you know, faith in this, this royal figure, right? Um, I, I, I do think that um, this is something, you know, like you said, that obviously the, the way that Christ has become vacuous is, is a huge, huge piece of the puzzle. Um, and, and just for us understanding why we are where we are. Um, yeah, and, and, and I also think that the, uh, the, this faith in language, like you said, um, you know, really needs to be reevaluated, even just in English, you know, I mean, like you said, it's, it's, I don't think anyone really wants to say that it's anti-evidence, right, which, which so often faith in, in English is that, right? Yeah, yeah, no one wants to say that except, you know, atheist apologists who are trying to, you know, advocate for, like, the problems with Christianity is that you guys have these irrational beliefs. Um, they wanted to find faith that way, right? But um, any good Christian response is going to say, no, 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 that's not what we mean by faith. Right, right, for sure. Um, yeah, so this this leads us into, you know, the the content of the gospel, right? Um, so you say this on, on page 105, and, and in particular, you reference the um, pre-NA calendar inscription. I'm not sure if I'm I'm saying that correctly, but part of it reads as follows. Surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, and since the birthday of the good Tuthe, of the god, sorry, Tutheu, Augustus, was the beginning of the good tidings, so this is Evangelion, for the world that came by reason of him. So after this inscription, you specifically argue against John Piper's view of the word Evangelion. Um, so can you explain more fully the significance of this inscription for how you understand the term in general? Yeah, so this would be, um, you know, if we were to look at the word euangelion in a number of different ancient contexts, right, we would see this is not an unusual usage, um, as it can refer to um, transitions that are large-scale transitions in empires, uh, and that um, it means glad tidings, right, in general, or good news, Um and um, it's often found, it's, sometimes it's found in the singular form, form, sometimes in the plural, and people who have studied that have not been able to derive a lot of significance. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of differentiation uh, between um, the intended meaning there. Um, but uh, we see this kind of usage, um, you know, for Josephus when he refers to Vespasian becoming um, the new emperor, um, and we see him applying Evangelian language. Here then in this particular inscription, um, it's the beginning of the of the good tidings, right? Obviously, this connects very closely to um, to the Gospel of Mark, right? Whenever we we find the opening line to the Gospel of Mark, you know, a beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, right? Um, 
and we have that language of the beginning of the good news. Um, so part of its significance, right, is that um, it does seem like our, our uh, the writers of our New Testament are using the word euangelion in a way that um, would have been familiar to insiders and outsiders alike, right? This was language that was available to them, and it would have been understood by themselves and by those um, who are outside of their community uh, to be a message of empire-wide significance. Um, so, yeah, did you want me to follow up on that, on like what's wrong with Piper's view? Yeah, yeah. So how was that different than, you know, Piper's view and the traditional understanding of, of this word? Yeah, so Piper's, Piper's view specifically argues that unless, um, unless the gospel includes personal, a message of personal forgiveness, then it couldn't be understood, possibly be understood as gospel. Um, that because gospel means good news, uh, gospel must mean good news for you or me personally. Uh, so if I was to hear the message like, Jesus has become the king, okay? Like Piper's argument is like, that's actually a terrifying message for me if I'm a sinner. And I hear there's this new king in town and this new king will bring in time's judgment. And I'm like, have, I'm on the wrong side of that. I haven't received personal forgiveness. Uh, well, then I'm just condemned. Uh, that would be Piper's argument. Um, the problem with Piper's argument is that it's it's based on, I, I think, ultimately a root fallacy argument, like that the word euangelion, like because we can split it apart into its roots, you, which means good or beneficial, and angelion, which means message, you know, that we can therefore determine that it must mean like, oh, it must literally mean a good message for each individual, or else it, it's not applicable. Like the problem is he's he's confused individual and corporate categories, right? That like yeah. the the term euangelion was a term that meant good news for the emperor, regardless of whether it meant good news for any single person, right? Like whenever like Josephus talks about the good news of Vespasian becoming the emperor, everybody would have recognized like that that Vespasian had enemies and it would mean their personal downfall, and it, he also had people who had kissed up to him effectively and would receive benefits, right? Um, and that there would be a, an upheaval personally for a lot of people. Some people would benefit, some people would, would, would go down in shame, right? Um, and, and yet, they still refer to the term euangelion. No one is like, you know, when Josephus is using the word, no one's going like, um, you know, actually, the news that Vespasian has become emperor, like, you can't use the word euangelion there because uh, you, you see, like, Vespasian has this, this enemy, and it's going to mean his personal downfall, so it's not good news for him, like nobody was making those kind of arguments, so it's like it's a that kind of um, use of language that Piper's suggesting is just incomprehensible within the first person, uh, excuse me, from within the world of the first century. Well, and it's interesting, even if you, um, I mean, I think this this distinction between the individualistic and the corporate is is so crucial too. I mean, even if you think about, you know, even if you break up the word and say good news, right, and it always has to be good. I mean. The, the things that we call good are highly, highly subjective based on our own personal, you know, under, like understanding of what is good and, and bad. And, and that may or may not, you know, line up with what is good for someone in particular, you know, what salvation wise, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's really helpful. Um, Let me piggyback that just really quickly. Like one thing Piper does get right is part of his assistant insistence, right, is that the gospel includes the forgiveness of sins. And this is partly because of First Corinthians fifteen three through five, right, where it talks about the Christ, you know, dying for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. Uh, and so he gets that right. Like that has to be part of the gospel. But notice, like it's the Christ dying for our corporate sins, right? It's not a, like about individualized forgiveness. And that's where he goes astray. So I think he wants to hold on to that sensibility that somehow it must mean forgiveness is coming, and he's right, but it means that forgiveness is universally available. And I think that's where he goes astray. Like, the, the right idea would be to say, like, the good news is that, is that forgiveness is available to all. Like, the mistake he makes is saying that it has to be actualized by each individual, or it doesn't count, or that it has to be received forgiveness by each individual. It's good enough news that it's actually available forgiveness for everyone. That's the good news. So, so then it's not actualized either for, let's say, um, believers, right, or people who are loyal to the king. Are is the good news that they in particular are forgiven, or is it that um, you know now everyone has the chance of forgiveness, right? So, keeping the idea of cor corporate, right, you can say, and 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 this is you know specifically the kind of the Calvinist, you know underpinnings of of atonement theology right is that you know you 
the the I mean Jesus died for a set group of people and and affected forgiveness and justification for them. Mm-hmm. Um so so but but what you're saying is is a little bit different on the corporate idea. It's just that what what the Messiah did was was offer himself as a sacrifice for sins so that anyone could could come. Is that the that the idea? That would be that would be a pretty important difference. And I suspect that's part of what pressures Piper to misread our text is that he has that underlying framework that is pressuring him would be that's just my sense. Now that might not be fair to Piper. I mean he put, I'm sure he wouldn't see it that way. But I do wonder if yeah. his reformed commitment there, his Calvinistic commitment, uh, is causing him to read the word euangelion in an individualistic way, partly because of concerns over uh, if he doesn't affirm that, then what does that mean for his theology of election? What does that mean for his theology uh, of, um, of you know, the efficacy of grace and so on and so forth? Yeah, yeah. And obviously, you know, this is this is a huge, you know, example of, you know, how how, how do we relate exegesis and, and theology, sure. right? And yeah. And how should they inform one another? Um, but but just to to sort of play devil's advocate here, how how would you respond to someone who says, you know, who looks at this this passage, right, that you brought up from the, this inscription, right, and they would just say, um, you know, okay, that's great. This Roman background, like we we see the uses um, of the term in this way, and and we agree with you. But but you know, the Israelite background is just is just different. Um, you know, you have um, particularly this whole system of of sacrifice and atonement, right? And 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 they would want to just bring in all of those sorts of ideas to to the good news. And and you know, similar to the way um, you know it, it it's been noted for for a long time that agapo, you know, the the God love, right, is used differently in the New Testament, right, than mm-hmm. than in you know other surrounding. Um, you know, another text during that time. So, so how how would you respond to someone then? You know, who says like, well, the the Roman inscription is fine, but but it's not it's not really relevant to to an Israelite culture in the first century. Yeah. Well, certainly we need to start with clear understandings and move you know to um, more disputed passages if we want to kind of say like, well, the idea is present even though like the word is. You know, if we want to kind of link ideas into words that um, that are more uncertain, we have to um, we have to have clear examples where we find that to be the case. So I would I would answer in a couple ways. First, we would say I would say that that in the Old Testament we do find in the Greek Old Testament the Septuagint the exact same the exact um, you know sort of range of meaning I'm specifying for euangelion. Like the first instantiation of the word euangelion in the Old Testament um, uh, is in this passage where it refers to uh, in fact a messenger who has come to report the news about Saul's death, right, uh, and that he thinks David is going to reward him for this euangelion, right, that he's bringing, but David instead uh, does not reward him for his euangelion, right? Instead, he has he has him put to death, um, and so, but he, but he sees it. The word the word means good news, and the good news c- connects to a change in royal regime, right? That Saul is now dead, so David would become king. So it certainly has an Israelite background. It also has an Israelite background in the sense that God is going to begin to reign in some new significant way. We, f- we find that in Second Isaiah, right? That um, certainly we, we find ideas um, that God is going to begin his, his reign from Zion in some way that's a dramatic break from the past. Um, so there's a sense in which God has always become the king, uh, has always been the king, but there's a sense in which his kingship must be refreshed or radically renewed or restored. Uh, that we find uh, with the language in, um, in, in Isaiah 40 through 66. Um, so it, it certainly has an Israelite background. Um, in, in terms of like, I think you asked kind of another related question, and I don't want to talk on too long, but that might be maybe like, uh, how about this other stuff that gets packaged in there, like the atonement system and so on and so forth? Well, isn't that part of the gospel? Um, I would say, well, certainly it is on the one hand, but like mostly on a corporate level, right? I've already mentioned that, like, mm-hmm. you know, that that forgiveness of sins is part of the, but it's for our sins collectively. Um, and that like the language of justification specifically would be like the hot topic of controversy as that's been a classic Protestant position because Luther fronted it, right? It would be that justification by faith is part of the gospel or even some Protestants would even go so far to say that it's the center of the gospel, the heart of the gospel. Actually, John Piper uses that language. You know, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul. I mean, we could name some specific names, but that's pretty broad. Uh, I mean, pretty widespread. Lots and lots of Protestants would say justification by faith is 
uh, the center of the gospel, speaking again as a Protestant, um, I beg to differ. I don't think that we can we can demonstrate that justification by faith is part of the gospel. I think it's better understood as, on the one hand, justification is a benefit, and the other hand, faith is our response to the gospel, but neither is part of the gospel itself. I can get into that more if you wish, but I'll let you ask some more questions. Yeah, well, I mean, that kind of leads us into the next question. Um, so particularly the relationship between, you know, gospel and forgiveness and justification. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm quoting here from um, page 106 in your book. You say, although Piper has wrongly forced Evangelion to carry improbable meanings, he is correct to insist that Paul's gospel must absolutely must include the good news of forgiveness from sins. But earlier in the book, you say the following about justification. I'm not claiming that justification by faith alone is untrue. It is absolutely true if justification, dikaiosune, and faith, pistis, are rightly understood. My claim is different. Our justification by faith is not part of the gospel. So I think some, and, and I think this is part of the the issue with the the controversy, um, and some listeners might might just be a little bit confused, right? And I think people in general, right? What, what's the difference, right, between saying forgiveness of sins can be part of the gospel, right, 1 Corinthians 15, um, but justification by faith is not? I mean, particularly, you know, today, um, those two are, are, are really not nuanced in popular culture, right? Um, so, so how do you view the relationship between forgiveness and justification, and, and why is this distinction important to, to the content of the gospel itself? Yeah, that's a great question. Um... And I think it hopefully, hopefully will help. This this will help clarify. Um, so Paul says right in Romans one seventeen, he says, "For in it, meaning he's referring back to the gospel, right? In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, um, and then by faith for faith, right? Just as written, the righteous one will live by faith." Um, so when Paul uses that language for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. I would understand the righteousness of God to involve like our justification, like, um, so I do think, like, Luther was correct, the Reformed tradition, Calvin, all that, like, is generally correct in, in terms of how they, um, they they position the righteousness of God as a benefit that we receive. The problem is that it hasn't, it, that doesn't mean it's part of the gospel. Paul says something different. He says, for in the gospel, our righteousness is revealed. That doesn't mean that the righteousness is part of the gospel. It just means that the righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Right, so if we see the gospel as uh, as content or event, right? If the gospel is the good news about Jesus's incarnation, his his death for our sins, his his resurrection, his kingly reign, if we understand the gospel as uh, describing Christ events, right, and then those events, then like um, from those events, like certain benefits derive, that would be like sort of like we don't want to get the benefits mixed up with the event itself, like. If I have a birthday party for you and I offer to give you, um, you know, or at the birthday party, it's this birthday party for you and I give you um, something great. Uh, I give you a um, new, um, you know, uh, sweater. Okay. Maybe that's not great. Maybe that's corny. That, that's great. That's great. <laughs> I give you a new sweater, right? Um, like we wouldn't want to say like um, like that the, the birthday party is a sweater, right? That's like a confusion. That's essentially what they've done. Like for in the right in the gospel, in it, right, a righteousness of God is revealed. So like it, at the party or in the party, right, a gift was revealed. Like uh, I gave you a sweater, but we don't want to say that the party is the sweater. That's sort of what's been done. Whenever we slide together the gospel and justification too easily, so um, the best way to articulate it would be to say that justification is a benefit of the gospel. So again, it we're trading on this corporate individual idea. So like the idea would be that the that that the gospel reveals ju- the righteousness of God. It reveals the possibility of justification, right? As 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 then somebody who who responds to Jesus can enter personally into that justification. But that doesn't mean it is the gospel. Like the gospel is about what Jesus did, right? Um, the benefit is something that like attends to uh, or depends upon the gospel or is conditional upon a response to the gospel. So. Um, so it's similar to forgiveness, right? Like in a sense, like, okay, forgiveness is offered through the gospel. He died for our sins, right? But the individual appropriation of that is conditional on a response to the gospel and is ultimately the Holy Spirit's work, right? So we would want to say that, okay, the justification is revealed corporately for everybody in the gospel as a possibility, but its actualization depends on response. Okay, okay. So so you would say that that 
you know, justification is part of the gospel in the sense that it is a, just like forgiveness, right? It is a possible benefit, you know, and, and, and that's a benefit, right? That is, that is revealed, right? In, in the good news, right? So it's in, in that sense, you know, um, we might not call it part of the message, but we can call it, um, you, you know, a result or something. And I think that's the language you yes. use. Um, so, so, so you would say really those two things are, I mean, are, are the same um, with justification and forgiveness, right? They're, that they're both part of the gospel in that sense. Yeah, well, justification is our right standing. And of course, like we, like, again, this, like we have corporate ideas versus individual ideas is we could, we might want to think about it this way. Like on the one hand, like there's an objective reality to our justification as a, as a whole church. Right, the the whole everyone who's responded to Jesus as King as part of the gospel, right? Everybody is justified, right? Uh, and so we can talk about it being an objective reality, like and something that's happened in the past. Like in the past, people have become justified, right? Um, it also has a present dimension and it has a future dimension, right? But like how the individual enters or leaves that group, right? Like that depends on individual response. So like Jesus has provided objective justification for his people corporately. Right, like individual inner entrance into that or exit from it is something that is not particularly in view here. So that's like when we talk about like justification, like on an individual level. Well, that depends on whether or not you've responded to the gospel um, and whether you've joined the church, which are God's justified people. So we can talk about justification being a real thing that's objectively held by His people, but like how that attaches to an individual is not part of the gospel. That's a benefit that derives from the gospel, and and you put it in the right way. It's a possible benefit, right? That's that's a, that's through the gospel, right? Right. So, and so this kind of brings up another um, another point. So, your book has obviously raised some controversies with others. I mean, you you mention specific names. You say they're wrong about something that's very important, right? Um, and I think you do that, right? My my you know my reading of you is is that you you want to get this right, right? And 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 I think you know, you do a good job of that in the book. Um, one, one thing that I, I have read is the, the back and forth between you and Greg Gilbert mm-hmm. and, and Scott McKnight. Um, how have other people, though, responded to some of, of your other claims in the book? You know, um, has it been, I mean, I, I think within the, within the Reformed camp, you're, you're stepping on toes, right? Um, have you seen, you know, some... Um, willingness to to hear this out, or have you seen more? You know, yeah, uh, don't step on my toes anymore. <laughs> oh, I, I've definitely a lot of willingness. I mean, a lot of people who are like in the reform camp, like it's a loose affiliation. You know, that's their sensibility that they associate with. I, I myself have a reformed heritage. You know, I'm not like anti-reformed. I just want to get it right. You know, and I think that um, yeah, there's a lot of people. I would say I have like lots of like friend requests from you know like p- pastors who are reformed who are like saying they're preaching this material. Um, and I think there's other people who like are deeply like entrenched in the reform system that like this makes them nervous, uh, but they don't really know how to respond. And I think they're still wrestling through like, like what exactly the implications are. Does this fit in the reform system? How much adjustment is needed? If so, like why and where? And are like, there's just a sense of malaise, right? Like they're, they're uncertain as to, as to, um, how to deal with this disruption. Um, but to be honest, I, I don't think there there has not been any substantive pushback that that I think that I would need to respond to as an academic. Uh, there hasn't been any successful criticism of the project, at least that I would consider to be important enough that um, that would it would merit a response. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's interesting. I you know reading it, you you would just think that people would uh be be hunting you down <laughs> and 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 you know really like challenging you on on some of your ideas i um, i think that there's i mean i think that the people who read it either are um unpersuaded and they don't want to be confrontational or they don't know how they're not persuaded or they are persuaded and they don't want to i think honestly there's like such huge power structures there um that like some of the names i name like you know like piper macarthur like these are like people that like are influential and that like are part of influence groups sometimes they're part of like some of the people I like criticize like you know like um like Piper like are affiliated with Gospel Coalition Gospel Coalition gives tons of people a platform and they do good work like I mean I like Gospel Coalition yeah. I'm not like anti-gospel coalition I'm pro-gospel 
right? I think the gospel coalition needs to sharpen their articulation of the gospel, ironically. Um, but nevertheless, like they're good. I mean, this is a good organization doing like lots of really, really amazing work. And the people who have received their platform from them, they don't want to come out and say like, uh, come out and say anything that would be against Piper or whatever. Their allegiance is more to their, um, their power structure affiliations than it is to the actual gospel or either that they're just not confident enough that the critique that I've offered is valid, that they're willing to um, risk their platform that they get within these power structures. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's a, just a huge thing. I mean, even, even just personally, right. As a pastor to, to kind of say, Hey, you know, um, I think I might've been wrong about at least my emphasis, right. On the gospel for X number of years. And I, you know, that, that, that just takes, I mean, it takes a lot of humility. Yeah. It's just not going to happen either for most people. I mean, what they just do is they just change the message. Like then like, yeah, they don't know. So it's just like the message is just shifted and like, they don't say like, Oh, I was wrong before. Like all of a sudden they're just talking about King Jesus and allegiance and you compare to what they were saying five years ago and it's entirely different, but um, their congregational go with them because they trust them, you know, like by and large. And that's okay too. If that's how people need to respond, like I don't really like, that's fine. Like, I'm seeing a lot of that actually. I'm seeing a lot of a lot of churches that are just shifting language and they're not they're not fronting that they're saying something different than they were saying 5 years ago. They're just changing. But but I think that that, that is one of the the helpful things about your book is that is that you you really do draw a a dividing line. And I think for for some people it can be it can be a little bit confusing, right? I mean, especially lay people who, you know, they're they're they hear Piper, they hear Sproul, MacArthur, Chandler, like all these people, and they they don't understand the nuances of of you know what what you might be saying and what they might be saying, right? And so I think it's actually it was very helpful for for you to just say, hey, this is what they're saying. I'm saying something different, um, just to lay all the, lay the cards on the table, and and I think that kind of leads into um, you know one of my last few questions. So for for listeners that that might not know the biblical languages and culture as well as you do um or as well as scholars do right um you know and 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 they are wrestling through these these sorts of things right and and how 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 do we understand you know pieces how do we understand evangelion and and specifically you know when when i read my english text you know it's and it says believe in jesus you know what what do i even what do i even say right um how do you suggest they they decide between these you know different proposals just like on a practical level like how how do you um you know can you offer any advice on on how they might go about saying okay um you know this this makes sense right for for these reasons um you know without without really knowing the language and the culture yeah, that's hard. And I mean, that's why people tend to gravitate to whom they trust, right? As that's why Piper and MacArthur have such a huge following is um, they're well-known and trusted individuals and for good reason. Like, I mean, they've done, they've been faithful people by and large, you know, um, not that they're flawless, um, but they're spokespeople for a per- particular perspective that people have come to trust. So um, I think that it's partly a- about you know, like, um, obviously, like, doing lots of your own reading in Scripture, even in English, like, helps you to um, to just be really acquainted with the broad Word of God in a, in a sense that helps you to feel more confidence in making your own judgments. Like, you, you begin to, like, get more confidence. Um, beyond that, I think um, it's important to have a certain kind of healthy suspicion of dominant, like, paradigms for how you think words mean things. So that like whenever you see the word gospel, whenever you see the word faith, whenever you see the word grace, it's it's almost impossible for you to not bring meaning that has been shaped like by contemporary Christian culture. So reading some books in biblical studies where people are like getting back to ancient categories and are like looking at these words um, without um, without all those layers of church history, um, but realizing those layers of church history can be helpful, right? But but at the same time, are willing to say like, um, let's go back and let's let's look at this in a first century context, and then let's take seriously church history too. But let's begin um, with our sola scriptura commitment. Um, and um, I think like reading some works there of of people like Scott McKnight and Mike Gorman and N.T. Wright and people whose project is not purely reformational, but is like interested in like critically engaging the Reformation in a helpful way. I think that's a good place to start. 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And, and, you know, I think just thinking about the people who have really shaped, you know, our, um, I mean, the, the really influential studies, you know, even recently, Barclays, Paul and the Gift, you know, that's, that's what they've done. They've said, hey, let's take this category that everyone just assumes, you know, and like, let's take a fresh look at it, you know, given, given the first century context. Um, and, and, and I think your point too about, um, you know, just reading the, reading the broad, um, you know, depth or breadth of scripture, right, is so, so crucial. I mean, you, you, um, you know, you make a certain argument about peace, meaning allegiance, but, but at the end of the day, you know, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, right? And, and, and that is, if it's not a call to allegiance, I don't, I don't know what it is, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and so I think, I think your, your view harmonizes those, those two things. Whereas, you know, in, in many readings of the text, it's like, well, you know, you believe and then, you know, you can take up your cross if, if, you know, you're really spiritual or, yeah. I mean, it, 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 they're not the same, right? They're, they're just kind of an add on, yeah. right? To, to, to really, to really follow. Yeah, it integrates discipleship. Yeah, that's the key is I think that, yeah, the gospel allegiance model integrates discipleship into a salvation in a way that like traditional articulations of the gospel and salvation struggle to do. For sure, for sure. Um, so I just have three um, just really quick last questions about um, just the book in general. Um, so is there anything you wish you could go back and rewrite um, at this point and why? Um no, but I, I think that it's it would be more the case that I have more I want to say. Um, there's uh, yeah, there's there's not really anything sub- significant that I feel like I need to change in gospel allegiance. Um, there are some places where I guess if people have pushed back a little bit, and I wish I would have like just added more to c- clarify some of which I've done in this interview, right? Talking more about like okay, like how there's an objective dimension to like our justification, meaning that like God's people are justified, right? And like helping to clarify the corporate dimension of all that. I think I could have done more in this book. So I wouldn't say there's anything that I feel like I would really wish I would redo. It's more I wish I would have added. But then I, I was up against a word count. I was already 10,000 words over my my allotment when I published it. So um, yeah, I was already too long. I couldn't really add more. Yeah, th- those word counts are, they are, are just no brutal. good. Um, so can you, you know, along those same lines, can you give us a sneak peek into, into what you're working on these days, as far as pushing the conversation forward on Evangelion and Pistis? Like, are you working on something to, to clarify these things or, or speak more into it? Or you, you know, you've written your salvation by allegiance book and your gospel allegiance book, and are you moving on to the next topic? No, I'm, I'm, I'm still a hammer and tongs. I'm trying to forge this gospel allegiance model. Um, and uh, yeah, I have a book that will follow up gospel allegiance specifically. Uh, there may be another book in between, I'm not sure, but um, but I, I've already drafted most of it. So um, tentatively titled Beyond the Salvation Wars. I don't know if, if the title will stick or not, but it tries to apply that core gospel allegiance model to more controversial areas in soteriology. So um, like questions about like baptism or election or like these larger questions that are part of people's um you know framework as they're working on questions of salvation um like how does my model like provide um a cohesive response to other kinds of ways of putting together soteriology and with brazos also yeah same press so a follow-up specifically well we'll definitely be uh watching out for that that sounds like a fun read so um the last question, can you, and this is honestly more for, for our listeners, right? And, and or just for people in general, like for, for, for the church, um, can you give us an elevator pitch version of what you think the biblical, biblical gospel is in, in, let's say, like 20 to 30 seconds? Um, I mean, just, just so that people, you know, I think a lot of times people are in this sort of like, okay... I'm, I have this opportunity to present the gospel. And so I, I owe, I'm in this condition where I, I start out, man is a sinner, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and they just, and they fall into this sort yeah. of, you know, thing that they've been taught. Um, so yeah, what, what, what would you say your elevator pitch would be? Yeah, that, that's a, a great question. And I think I, I would want to differentiate between the gospel proper and then our, and our rhetorical pitching of it, like because I think that's an important distinction. Um, Scott McKnight does some helpful distinguishing work on that in his The King Jesus Gospel. 
Um, so I think that like we're allowed to pitch it in a variety of ways, and there's nothing inappropriate about starting w- with our fallen condition or with like our point of need, like somebody's point of need. Um, on the other hand, that's not the gospel. Like the gospel is more specifically that, um, and I, I could give you this, I could give you three different versions of it that are different kinds of ele- elevator pitches. The quickest would be to just say that Jesus is the saving king. Um, that's the quickest summary, and I think that's faithful, very faithful to how the New Testament summarizes the gospel. The second would be a more Trinitarian framing that I think is also very faithful to the biblical gospel, but to say that, you know, the Father sent the Son to become the, the saving king uh, so that the Father and the Son could send the Spirit um, so that we could enjoy um, all the benefits that God wants to give us in salvation. Um, so kind of think, thinking about how, like, Father sends the Son so that they can send the Spirit um, is a helpful way of thinking about the gospel. Um, a kind of the fullest way would be to kind of like bring together, I think, all the clearest statements of, of the New Testament on the gospel. Uh, and this is like kind of the expanded outline I give in Gospel Allegiance. But to say that, first of all, the gospel is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the king, right? That's the overall kind of summarizing statement. And that within that, then to emphasize 10 points, right? That first he was sent by the Father, um, second to take on human flesh in the line of David. So like as a fulfillment of the promises of David. So this would include his human life. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, signifying the reality of his death and resur- his death. Uh, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Uh, he um, uh, then was uh, seen by many witnesses. He appeared, and then he seated at the right hand of the Father as the King, right? And then um, from that position, uh, he sends the Holy Spirit, and then he will return again as the judge. I think we could find clear statements in the New Testament that each one of those is part of the gospel. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. So now uh, we have a, a short sentence and a medium length yeah. and a minute long elevator right, pitch. You got it. Great. So that's all we have time for on this episode of the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. Um, thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you, Kevin. And thanks to all of our listeners out there who have taken the time to listen to the Biblical Languages podcast. And we hope you enjoyed the episode. <laughs>